When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20enespañol.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. And I want to make an additional disclaimer. In today's episode, we will talk about murdered members of the LGBTQIA community. Every attempt has been made to be culturally sensitive and to use correct terminology. Any errors are completely unintentional. Each member of my team, myself included, considers themselves to be an advocate for the LGBTQIA community. And it is our fervent hope that we have treated these individuals with the dignity and respect they deserve. Hey, everyone. So I wanted to keep you updated on some fun things I have coming up in the next couple of months. I'm excited to share that I'll be joining Parcast and Moment House in a special one-night-only interactive experience alongside some of the great minds of true crime. Join us on July 14th to delve into all things true crime play a round of killer knowledge with us, and there's going to be so much more. So make sure you get tickets before they're gone. You can go to momenthouse.com slash the great minds of true crime or get tickets in the link that's going to be in the show notes. Joining me on the stage is going to be podcast founder Max Cutler, victim advocate and prolific podcaster Sarah Turney, the host of And That's Why We Drink, Christina Nem and then the host of Two Girls, One Ghost, Sabrina and Corinne. Then, of course, you know we have the True Crime Podcast Festival that's taking place August 26th through the 28th in Dallas, Texas this year. Tickets are still on sale, so you have an opportunity to join us, and they just released VIP tickets, which means you get front row access to all of the live show and panels, a cool t-shirt, some stickers, just like a bunch of fun stuff. And best of all, you get to see me. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Heterosexism, or the notion that all people should be heterosexual, has been prevalent throughout history but is often difficult to discern in the historical record. In colonial America, many laws existed to prevent same-sex relationships as well as cross-dressing. To the Puritans, sex was only for procreation, Deception and disguise were the ideas behind the laws on cross-dressing. 
Individuals were executed for participating in same-sex sexual acts, while others, like Thomas, Thomasine Hall, were humiliated under these laws. It is unknown what gender was assigned to Thomas-slash-Thomasine Hall at birth, but what is known is that Thomas joined the Army for a year. Upon return from service, Thomasine worked on fine bone lace pieces and wore dresses. In 1629, Thomas moved to a small town in Virginia where they were accused of wearing inappropriate attire. There were also allegations that they were having a relationship with a maid, which exacerbated the issue. Multiple intrusive examinations of their body followed, first by respectable wives of the area, next a group of made-up magistrates and clerks, and finally by a jerk who snuck in and examined their genitalia while they were sleeping. Eventually, the magistrate determined that Thomas, Thomasine, had both sexes and forced them to wear both male and female clothing. After this court case, Thomas Thomasine left the historical record. This record was particularly detailed, but other cases are complicated by the natural language to hide what were considered unnatural acts by citizenry composed of mostly religious members. The practice of subterfuge pertaining to same-sex crimes continued into the 20th century, with newspapers often referring to indecent advances as the reason for same-sex violence. Okay, on to the show. On May 20th, 1976, just as dawn was breaking along Interstate 80 in New Iowa, a motorist spotted something that looked like a person lying on the side of the road, just feet off the pavement. He pulled over to get a better look and quickly discovered the form of a very still person, partially covered by a blue blanket and blue pillow. A small black dog stood watch over the still form. When the motorist saw what looked to be spots of blood, he decided to contact law enforcement. Getting back in his car, he drove to Grinnell, Iowa, about two miles away. There, he went to the police station and talked to an officer, who sent a patrolman to investigate the form of a female lying just off the interstate at Linville Interchange. When the officer arrived on the scene, he notified dispatch that the woman appeared to be dead and did not appear to be the victim of a motor vehicle accident or any other type of accident. The dispatcher contacted the Jasper County Sheriff's Office, 15 miles west of the scene in Newton, Iowa. Deputy Sheriff Dunsbergen, who was finishing the night shift, arrived and began requesting additional personnel. Dispatch contacted Deputy Sheriff James Verwers, the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation and a mobile forensic crime team. When Warren Stump, assistant director of the Iowa BCI, arrived, the blanket was removed and the investigators could see a young woman wearing a bloodied flowered blouse and dark slacks. The black dog stood protectively over the woman as investigators worked. Convinced they were friendly, the dog patiently let them examine the tag affixed to its collar. The rabies tag showed that the dog had been vaccinated in Denver, Colorado. Another small dog had been struck by a vehicle and killed. Its tag was one digit off from the black dog's tag and was also from Denver so investigators theorized both dogs belonged to the dead woman. Investigators found a cigarette butt near the body and ash on the woman's slacks. The medical examiner proclaimed she had only been dead about an hour before she was found. There were bullet wounds in her head and back, 
Investigators also noted the woman had unusually large feet. The victim was wearing heavy makeup, but when Dr. Carpenter, the medical examiner, leaned in to have a closer look, he could see the beginnings of a dark beard through the makeup. A driver's license in the nearby handbag was for Terry Williams, female from Colorado. The photo on the license was the woman lying on the ground in front of them. Officers also found a small address book, which would prove useful in their investigation. But the most interesting item found was a marriage license dated six days prior. Terry A. Williams had married Richard Moore six days before in Denver, Colorado. Troopers and investigators initially wondered if her groom had also been murdered and launched a small search for Richard Moore. However, they soon theorized if he had been murdered in the area, his body would be close to his bride, so they focused on having Terry transported for examination. An investigator provided Sheriff Daryl Hurley with information about the incident, stating, The victim was shot a couple of times. The main thing we're waiting for regarding the examination is the sex. Investigators took the address book they'd found and made contact with law enforcement in Denver and Lansing, Michigan. Detective Lieutenant Joe Hibbard and multiple other officers in Lansing, Michigan, knew Terry Williams. Terry had moved to Lansing four years before, coming from Detroit. Terry had first arrived in Lansing before she'd had gender confirmation surgery. Her dead name was Frank Felis before the surgery. In October 1974, she had checked into a county hospital in Lansing, where she underwent the first of three surgeries. In early 1975, news of these operations leaked out and a television reporter learned of them. Although gender confirmation surgeries were not unknown, this was a new procedure which would not remove the male organ, but instead refashion it into a female organ. This intrigued the reporter who made contact with Terry, who was hostile towards him, threatening him if her name was released. The reporter assured Terry her name would not be released, but interviewed multiple other people, including a Michigan state legislator who was incensed that public funds would be used in such a fashion. This legislator was not the only state politician to question the use of these funds. When an appropriations bill for a medical school was brought up, many voted against it, not believing the medical school or instructors there should participate in these surgeries. The reporter went back to Terry's after the final operation and noted that she looked completely transformed. A young man arrived during their conversation, and Terry introduced him as her fiancé. However, the engagement was broken a few months before, and Terry moved to Denver, where she worked for a while as an exotic dancer. It was there that she met Richard Moore. However, these are not the reasons the Lansing police were familiar with Terry. During her time in Lansing, she'd had a roommate who confessed to her his involvement with a triple homicide in Florida. This information led to an arrest, a conviction, and the death penalty. Detectives in Lansing soon reported back to the investigators in Iowa. Terry and her groom had been in Lansing, staying with friends for several days. They had departed, and their friends assumed they were heading back to Denver. They had been driving a red Mercury, which was noted in Terry's address book, along with the license plate number. Terry had told friends in Lansing if they did not hear from her in two days to call the police. She was afraid her new husband was going to kill her. The couple had fought frequently while in Michigan, and one night, 
Richard told one of the hosts he was going to blow her away. The Denver police were informed of the type of vehicle and license plate and asked that they keep an eye out for it. Terry had included her home address in her little address book, and officers responded trying to make contact with Richard Moore. He wasn't there, but they talked to a neighbor and asked them to contact the police if they saw the car or Richard. Meanwhile, the preliminary autopsy report was released to the investigators. They were not shocked to see the cause of death was gunshot wounds from a twenty-two caliber weapon. The medical examiner also added that although born a male, the victim was legally and medically a female. At around 12.30 in the morning on May 22, 1976, Denver police received a call that the Red Mercury was in front of Terry's home. Officers arrived to find Richard Moore in the driveway, holding a small suitcase. He could have been unpacking his car or packing more in his car to leave again. They found a twenty-two caliber Magnum revolver in his car. It was later determined that it was the murder weapon that ended Terry's life. Richard Moore, Richard Moore, aged 26, told police he had dropped his wife off in Chicago on Wednesday and had not heard from her since. Richard was the son of a retired Army major. He waived extradition and was transported to Iowa. Richard's father later testified that his son had been an exceptional athlete in high school, earning a scholarship to an unnamed Colorado college. However, his son dropped out of high school in his senior year, later earning his GED. His son became withdrawn and began neglecting his appearance. He attended two years of college, but dropped out due to low grades and growing mental health issues. During his trial, Richard told the court about a jail fracas he had been involved in on Wednesday, February 16, 1977. Richard's version of events differed from the jailer's version. The jailer said that Richard said, They're not going to lock me up. I'm going to get out of this jail if I have to kill you. Then Richard wrapped his hands around the jailer's neck and stuck a thumb in the jailer's eye. The judge ruled that Richard needed to be handcuffed and shackled during the remainder of the trial. During the trial, a psychiatrist stated he had examined Richard Moore and found he had schizophrenic tendencies and was also insecure about his own sexual identity. The psychiatrist said if he found out that his wife had been assigned as male at birth, then had gender confirmation surgery, it would likely set him off. After several days of testimony, the jury found Richard Moore guilty of first-degree murder, which carried an automatic life sentence. On Monday, March 21, 1977, this sentence was confirmed. In 1980, however, a new trial was ordered for Richard Moore because he had been removed from the courtroom during his original trial for outbursts. A year later, the appeals court upheld his original sentence, stating that the judge was warranted in removing the defendant from the courtroom. In 1991, he wrote a letter to the circuit judge, which read, Before my trial, I was sentenced to death. I was in my cell in the jail in Newton when I was sentenced to death. The FBI states in some paperwork that the invasion of my privacy is unwarranted. I was removed from my cell and operated on. I want my head and body returned to me. I want to know about any injuries, wounds from criminal violence I received prior to surgery. My brain may have been taken out of my head and put in this head. This head was then sewn to this body. My medical records can prove the truth. Richard Moore, born on January 1st, 
1950, entered prison at age 27, and is still incarcerated today. In an even sadder ending, Terry Williams was buried by the county. No friends or family attended her funeral. It's rather ironic how respectful the media, investigators, and the court treated Terry in death. Most trans victims are misgendered by the press and treated derisively by law enforcement. For example, prior to the murder of Brandon Tina, Sheriff Lowe was very insulting and disrespectful to Brandon, calling him it and questioning his genitalia. Sheriff Lowe was sued by Brandon's mother and denounced by many of his fellow law enforcement officers. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health and also increase my energy. Now, I absolutely love it because I hate taking a dozen pills and vitamins and supplements. So now I've been on AG1 for about a month and a half now, and I love it. Honestly, it doesn't taste like anything super healthy. It feels like I'm drinking a vanilla shake every morning, which is really great. So you're probably wondering, okay, what is this stuff? Now, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Now, these help you start your day off right, and this special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, literally all of the things. AG1 is lifestyle-friendly, so whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, you can have this because it doesn't have any of the ingredients that go against any particular diet. And here's the thing, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So AG1 is a small microhabit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. So right now, at this very second, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. It's literally so easy. Now to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com TCFC. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TCFC to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Conversely, an entire city turned their backs on almost three dozen victims of arson a few years before Terry's murder. The Stonewall Uprising occurred on June 28, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. The uprising was in response to a police raid on the inn during the early morning hours. This raid sparked off a series of spontaneous protests by the gay community and is remembered to this day with the celebration of Pride Month. On the last day of the 1973 Pride Weekend in New Orleans, the upstairs lounge was packed. The festivities had drawn a large crowd, but it was also a Sunday night, the night the upstairs lounge hosted a beer bust, a happy hour with all-you-can-eat food and beer for $2. About 125 regular patrons packed the bar for the special. About 60 remained after the special ended. Most of those left were members of the New Orleans branch of the Metropolitan Community Church, America's first gay church. They held services at the upstairs lounge because their church had been set on fire several times over the previous years. A little after 8 o'clock p.m. that night, the buzzer downstairs sounded. The bartender asked one of the regulars, Luther Boggs, to check it out. When Luther opened the door, he was horrified to see the stairwell engulfed in fire. The fire spread rapidly and the upstairs lounge was instantly thick with smoke. The bartender led 20 patrons out on the roof where they were able to get to the ground. Unfortunately, when the door shut, it locked the remaining patrons inside. Other patrons tried to get through a window that faced the street, but there were bars over this window, with only a 14-inch gap between them. Some of those locked inside were small enough to get through the gaps, but many others were unable to squeeze through the bars. The fire station was only three blocks away, but this was the French Quarter on a June night. Pedestrian and vehicle traffic was heavy, and the fire trucks could not get through. One truck tried to drive on the sidewalk, but hit a taxi. Tourists and residents alike stood on the street below and watched helplessly as victims tried to escape the inferno. Many of the patrons leapt to the street below, burning as they went. When the fire department did reach the scene, they extinguished the fire immediately. By 8.12, the fire was out, a mere 16 minutes after it began. But that 16 minutes exacted a heavy toll. 29 were found dead that night, with three additional lives claimed over the next several days. The local chapter of the Metropolitan Community Church suffered the loss of 10 of its congregants and its pastor, Bill Larson. The assistant pastor, George Mitchell, escaped, but when he realized his partner wasn't with them, he ran back inside. The two were found clinging to each other. After the tragedy, the church could not find any other churches that would host a memorial service. The chief of detectives made a dig at the victims, stating that identifying the bodies would be difficult because they couldn't be certain that the papers found on them actually belonged to them. The gay community at the time of the fire not only had to deal with the grief of that tragedy, but also the public reaction to the fire. There were older 
people in the newsroom, older guys, and I heard him use some of the terms like they called it the fruit fry. And it, uh, it bothered me even then. Back then, I was in the Air Force, and uh, I had to get back to duty. Boy, there were some nasty, burning faggot jokes. I'm just, ah, I'm laughing with them, you know, because I can't let on any different. Um, there was a joke, you know, what do we bury the dead in? And the punchline was fruit jars, which was just absolutely crass and tasteless. And that gives you an insight into the attitudes in 1973. The newspapers um, ran all the names of the people who were hurt or who had made it out but were burned. If your name ended up in the newspaper, you probably could count on being fired from your job. Police say the bar is a hangout for homosexuals. And homosexuals frequently carry false identification papers, making positive identification of the victims nearly impossible. The national press, it was over with like that. Firemen searched through this, <coughs> pardon me, burned building in New Orleans' French Quarter today, looking for evidence of arson. Fire broke out in a second floor bar last night, killing 29 people and injuring 15. The stock markets opened the week badly today. That was the end of the story. The Archdiocese here said no Catholic funeral services for anybody who died in that fire. Uh, Reverend Perry had tried to contact a number of churches in order to have some kind of memorial service. We kept expecting somebody, some politician, the mayor of the city to speak up. Nobody would. Nobody. They ran the other way. The New Orleans police and the city officials just kind of were trying to brush it under the carpet, so to speak, you know, to cover it up. The police department actually closed the case, quit investigating. Stewart called me. I told him that I saw the guy, and I, I, back then I probably could have recognized him. And he asked me, to, he said, well, you need to come over here and, and, and uh, uh, tell the police what you know. And I said, no way. I just felt very, very positive that had I gone back and, and made a statement or if I would have even called them and made a statement that they would have turned me in. It's an automatic dishonorable discharge. That hurt me for a long time, knowing what I knew and I couldn't say anything about it. Most investigators believed arson was the cause of the fire. Initially, they had no suspects, but in November, a drifter in California confessed to the arson. Raymond Wallander had been arrested on shoplifting charges, but was soon extradited to Louisiana, where he faced murder charges. He said he had poured gasoline on the stairs leading to the lounge and then threw a lit cigarette in the gas. He said he did so because there was a cheat in the bar. However, shortly after he arrived back in New Orleans, he recanted his confession. They also discovered he was in Canada the weekend of the fire. I'd, I'd gone into the bathroom, and when I came out of the bathroom, I heard this guy come in. I remember him like it was yesterday. He, he just was upset and angry and drunk, and got caught stealing tips off the bar, and was nobody threw him out and I overheard him. There was a loud discussion between him and Buddy and a couple of other people before they got him out, and I heard him say, I'm gonna burn this place down. 
you can't kick me out. And uh, about 15 minutes later, I guess I left because I knew I had to get back uh, to, uh, to duty. All of a sudden, there was like, I saw this big glow coming in through the doorway and, and I started seeing the flames and it's just like, all of a sudden, it just like went across the bar. Most consider Robert Nunez to be the arsonist. He had been in the upstairs lounge earlier that evening where he got into a fight with another patron. He was ejected from the club. Police tried to talk to him after the fire, but his jaw was broken in the physical altercation. Robert had a history of mental illness and was eventually arrested on suspicion of murder, but he escaped from psychiatric custody. Robert confessed multiple times to setting the blaze. He completed suicide in November 1974. Eventually, all but two of the victims were identified. Much like in the case of Terry Williams, many of the families did not want to claim the bodies of their family members who perished, and many of them had no services held. Unfortunately, our LGBTQIA friends still need allies to help them defend against discrimination. Even today, Many cisgendered, heterosexual individuals believe that AIDS is a punishment from God for being gay. Violence against the transgender community is extremely high, particularly transgender people of color. For more information about how to be an ally, visit glad.org, G-L-A-A-D.org. For more information about the dangers this community faces, please visit the Human Rights Campaign. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you be an ally? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, and it's typically produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams, but he's actually moving into a new house and is going on and doing great big boy things. Don't worry. He'll be back, so you won't have to suffer with me, who's editing this episode.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.